0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna.
1: And me, Frederick.
0: So today we're sitting with Dara and Sean from the ECC, or the Electric Coin Company. Welcome to the show. Hello. Good to be here. Hi, nice to be here. And we have Frederick here.
1: Hello, hello. And we've had Sean on before, but we've never had Dara on. Uh, maybe we do quick intro to Sean and then dig into a little bit of your background,
2: Dara. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, so I, I work in uh,
3: research and engineering at the Electric Coin Company. So I've been doing a lot of the engineering of SNARK uh, implementations and circuits, and also research into more efficient uh, protocol designs and uh, new, new SNARK.
1: And according research. to my Twitter, you're an alien who came to Earth to for the zero-knowledge-proof science. There's, there's a lot of those, actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Dara? What's your, what are you working on at ECC? And maybe since you're, it's the first time that you're on the show, give us a little bit more of a background on how you arrived at this space.
2: Uh, so I do protocol design and specification and, and uh, documenting the protocol mainly um, uh, and some engineering as well. So I got interested in crypto in the uh, sort of crypto wars in the 90s. Then I, it was the maths that kept me here. I, I love maths and it's great to be able to do cutting edge maths for a job. Um, not many
0: people can do that. Had you studied cryptography or math? In the past?
2: Um, I did a degree in maths and computation, but um, not really cryptography. Um, so that's self-taught. And then I was working on research in capability-based security. So that's a, a security model where you use unforgeable references, references to things to um, express security policies. And there was a project called Tahoe lfs which is a distributed file store. And Zuko was involved with that, so that's how I met Zuko. Um, Then I started working for uh, Least Authority, uh, which was a startup um, supposed to commercialize Tahoe LAFS. Um, And then from that, I went on to um, Zcash.
0: We've actually had Zuko on the show. I think he was episode 50. We've also had Liz from Least Authority on the show as well. And so I'll add those in the show notes if people want to find out a little bit more about those projects so that was your route to the ECC. Was there, I mean, previously the Zcash company. At what point did sort of zero-knowledge proofs or that kind of snark uh, research really enter into your world?
2: So Zcash was an instantiation of zero-cash. Uh, and that paper had already been written that uses uh, zero-knowledge proofs. Um, so from the from the time I started it um uh, Zcash, we were all learning how to use um zero knowledge proofs and which we all had to learn from scratch.
0: And that must have been a funny time to learn it because at the time, and, and this is to you too, Sean, like there must not have been very much documentation around this stuff, there wasn't the kind of like educational resources that we're starting to see emerge around it,
3: right? A lot of it was uh folklore and we <laughs> learned a lot of it from each other, yeah.
2: Yeah, There, there was just papers and working out from scratch, really. Wow.
1: When Zcash started, did Libsnark already exist and like was a thing that was considered stable? And you like at Zcash just went with it, or you know where did Libsnark exist in relation to Zcash?
2: So there was already a prototype of um, ZeroCash that used Libsnark, and we ended up rewriting all of the code in that prototype, um, but we still used Libsnark. I see.
1: And then at some point down the road, which we'll come to later, I'm sure, you rewrite
2: LibSnark as well. That ended up being Bellman. Uh, Yeah, so Sean wrote that in Rust. When did you write Bellman?
3: So I started working on Bellman before I even worked for the company. And we talked about this in the previous episode. But it actually ended up being a a true LibSnark replacement only around 2017 or so. Even though it did start back.
0: A little
2: earlier than that, and we've we've now completely replaced Liv um, with Valman. Cool.
0: The last time I think we touched on ECC news was with you, Sean, which was possibly almost a year ago. I think it was. Eh? So maybe we can just talk about like what has happened since then, and maybe what were your focuses like from that point onwards in the company.
3: So in early 2019, obviously, I was uh, a co-author of the Sonic paper. And so that was kind of my focus was uh, actually instantiating practical, universal, uh, trusted setups. And I thought that was a really good direction. Uh, There were some other different directions, like no trusted setups, it seemed like they were getting better and better. And also uh, these hybrid uh, models like sharks, which we can talk about later. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of interesting things happening and I was sort of uh, looking into new constructions and trying to see what the next thing after Sonic was. And meanwhile, uh, Dara was doing scalability research. And those kind of go hand in hand when it comes to Zcash because SNARK constructions are a really integral component of our scalability plans. As, as far as we can tell, they're, they're um, very crucial
2: for achieving performance that we need in practice. Yeah, it's important to have the emphasis of writing a paper or preparing for a presentation um, to to actually get research done in my experience. So um, in my case, uh, the the emphasis for doing that initial scaling research was I had a presentation at Secon 1. So that's why that, that got done on time.
0: Um, but I've
2: since refined it um, quite a bit.
1: This isn't the first time I've heard of a presentation-driven <laughs> development.
0: <laughs> I remember that talk at ZCon1. This was in uh, Croatia, in Split Croatia, last summer. And in that talk, you had specifically highlighted this idea of like moving Zcash into a, like a sharded system, potentially, so I'm wondering kind of like what I I've always been like a little bit curious about like how far that went. Like I as I understood it was like still very much proposal like kind of like research phase at that time. What what kind of where did you go with that idea?
2: Um it's still a proposal. So we have a plan to deploy um some kind of scaling solution by 2021. So that's the plan, um, but there's a lot of work to do before then. Uh, there's a lot of detail and optimization um, and design choices to make. I'm
1: I'm curious to hear how this work came about in the first place because I remember talking to Zuko at I think SBC 2019. So that was well before that presentation, and I know like he's tweeted or talking to a bunch of other community members and Metallic and this and that and like. I know he's been like going around trying to gather ideas for how we can scale Zcash. I don't know, like, does that make it into the company and then gets like selected and percolated within the company? Or is it that really like a separate thing? And it's, you know, the company researchers like yourself are coming up with their own proposals.
2: Well, um, we're always looking at what other people are doing. Um, uh, The Ethereum people have come up with um, some really interesting ideas recently in the last um, few months, uh, even in the last week. But um, even before that, I think we'd learned from Bitcoin um, because Bitcoin had a a huge political issue about um, how scaling should be done should uh, the block size be increased and so on. And we wanted to... Avoid some of the political strife that had occurred for Bitcoin by was thinking about this issue a lot earlier. Uh, in in the sort of the lifetime of the currency, obviously Bitcoin has had um, a few years longer. Yeah.
3: one of the things that kept coming up, and this was back in like 2017, so uh, you can kind of see why. But anytime we pitched Zcash to an exchange or to a new merchant or or something like that one of the things that we heard across the board was, well, what's your scalability plan? And that's just, it was a meme back in 2017, but it became a reality for all the projects in the space. And now everyone is expected to have some sort of long-term plan on scalability. And that's why it's such a focus in in the Ethereum land. In In the Zcash land, it's a little more complicated because we have to get scalability and privacy at the same time. And not just uh, mediocre privacy—that's pretty easy, and a lot of people have shown how to do that with with scale. But we have to have the strong uh, ledger indistinguishability property that underlies Zcash, and that's a really difficult bar uh, to reach. So a lot of this, a lot of this started very early on in the Zcash project, where we were pondering like, where are we going to go uh, to appease? everyone and make everyone know that we're taking this seriously and also what what is realistic what can we actually deploy
2: yeah i mean we've already made some um scalability improvements Uh, we we started off with double the block size of um, bitcoin and a quarter of the uh block spacing so that gave us an eight times capacity
0: that's right Um, from the beginning you mean that was right, like right from the start, like in the actual like genesis. Of yeah, it. and
2: then okay. and then more recently with the blossom upgrade, um, we've halved the block time um, again. So that's sixteen times relative to Bitcoin. Although they've they've introduced SegWit, which makes things more complicated for them.
3: These are, of course, <laughs> constant factor improvements that correspond with uh, improvements we've made to the performance of, like for example, our SNARK verifier and things like that. That evolve that we've been taking into account, but the kind of scalability challenges that we need to address going forward are more architectural, and also they affect the user interface pretty significantly. So,
0: I guess I was just thinking, like, like scalability in the Zcash context is a little bit different because you have this sort of scaling of the general blockchain, but then you also have the speed up of the snarks. Because if you want to be working in a like in a more shielded environment then you're going to actually have to have faster snarks and faster snarks would on some level also mean faster blockchain which i guess you would that, that falls in the scaling category as well
1: yeah um faster user experience i suppose yeah.
2: yeah uh yeah so so we made huge improvements with sapling and i i think actually the proving performance for making payments is quite acceptable on desktop at least maybe it needs further improvement on mobile and for hardware wallets but the verification time is what determines so the network capacity. Um, so this presi- is for the SNARKs specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, SNARKs and signatures, because they're both significant. We couldn't keep on doing upgrades like Blossom indefinitely, because we would end up in a situation where um, if someone is doing a de- denial-of-service attack, then they could just fill blocks with um, SNARKs, and they would take too long to verify.
1: There's also, I mean, when you think about scaling in in those terms that you said, Anna, there's also diminishing returns to like the UX side of it, right? Where as a user, as long as it's less than a few seconds, I don't really care anymore. Like it doesn't make a huge difference if it's two seconds or one second, but the amount of engineering required to have this, the time again, when it's at that threshold is huge.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of different time-related UX issues. Some of them are latency between you and the network, latency between you and getting finality of your transaction so you know it's irrevocable. They're like exactly what the interaction between you and the recipient is and how many uh, steps you take or how many rounds of interaction you take. In most cases, it's zero, but different architectures of payment designs can change how that works and... There's different trade-offs. And then there's also consumption. And um, I mean, if if you want to receive payments privately, it's really hard to make a trade-off between not communicating directly with the sender for privacy reasons or receiving your information in a broadcast network like like Zcash is currently, where every transaction is sent to every user and every user has to decrypt or attempt to decrypt each payment to see if it's actually for intended for them.
2: There's also the issue of how long it takes uh, between when you've received a payment and when you're able to spend it again.
3: Dara, you touched
1: on something I think is super important, which is the political aspect. And I wonder how you guys see that in, in like scaling, sharding, these kinds of things. Where you know Ethereum took the approach that this is just too hot to touch. We're not going to be able to deploy anything to the existing network. We have to create a whole new network and then figure out some way to bring the old users over eventually. Uh, But that, you know, introduces a ton of complexity just in and of itself.
3: I'm actually a huge fan of that style of uh, migration personally uh, because especially for the Zcash case because we built on top of Bitcoin. So there's a lot of legacy cruft that we just want to, Burn down and uh, starting from scratch is a, r- a really nice way to like make the right decisions from the first place. It is really contentious in Ethereum's case, but there's a lot of other factors that are going into that, I think, than just just this uh, strategy they're taking to migrate.
2: I, I'm all in favor of burning the disk flex, but that's a small talk reference. Um, so yeah, um, the Bitcoin codebase is terrible. Um, I, I hope I don't get into trouble with the Bitcoin developers for saying that, but it is. Especially um, the version that we forked from, which was zero eleven two. We've been able to do some refactorings and and pull some stuff, some improvements in software engineering um, practice from upstream. But that's actually really difficult once the codebase has diverged a lot.
1: I mean, as someone who's worked on re-implementing Bitcoin, uh, even when you take a from-scratch re-implementation, you end up with something that isn't very good just because of the way things are designed. Like, you, there are bugs in Bitcoin, and you have to replicate those bugs. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> yeah, it, you get into weird territory.
2: That's exactly right. And there's also the fact that eventually we want to remove... Um, T addresses to remove the transparent part of the protocol, not just because of um, protocol complexity and uh, potential security problems, but because you get a much better overall anonymity set and privacy properties if everyone is using shielded.
0: Mm. Wow, I didn't know that that was actually the plan to like eventually remove the transparent. I always, I always thought there was like strong encouragement to use the shielded accounts. <laughs>
2: Um, so I'm not. I think perhaps plan might be too strong a word for it. I I know that those engineers are pretty keen on that approach. There's
3: a, there's a lot of political
2: considerations. Like for example, just
3: the fact that there's so many people are using theaters currently. It's an interesting on-ramp to the actual currency. It'd be it's it's completely speculative, but I'm pretty confident that had there not existed T adders, there would be a lot less Z adder usage. For sure. Simply because of the accessibility. So there's an advantage to them. I think what we want over the long term isn't necessarily getting rid of T adders. Well, I guess we do want to get rid of T adders for architectural reasons and simplicity reasons, but what we want is for transparency to be an explicit decision from the user. Uh, in the form of things like payment disclosures and viewing keys and other other tools like that. But that privacy should be an easy thing to get by default.
2: Got There's it. also the um, the issue that we can't do some of the things uh, that Bitcoin does in ZK-SNOX. So we probably can't support Bitcoin script in ZK-SNOX. Um, we wouldn't want to. Yeah, in in fact, the full generality of Bitcoin script isn't really being used on the Zcash network. Um, People are using um, a little bit of multisig. In fact, I think over 95% of the uh, script usage is just multisig. So people are not using more complicated things. Um, And if we support shielded multisig, then that will replace that functionality.
1: So what does this scaling situation look like today then?
3: So we do
2: have a tentative plan for a scaling
3: proposal, and that's what Dara's been working on. And there's a lot of... There, actually, there are very few open questions left, but a lot of work ahead to address them.
2: Yeah, um, I've also been looking at other um, some scalability proposals that have a privacy component. There's a account-based anonymous roll-up that's been proposed for Ethereum. Um, that has some interesting ideas. So instead of um, we're in Zcash... Um, all funds are held in notes and there's no distinction between um, the notes that you hold yourself and the notes that you're transferring to some other party. In an account-based anonymous roll-up, those are distinguished and you have money orders, which are how you send funds to another party. And that has some advantages. Um, so you can, because you know that a money order is going to be redeemed fairly quickly, you can reduce the size of the accumulator that you use for that. So we, we may actually end up um, taking some of those ideas and combining them with my proposal. There's another... So that would fit in quite well with an idea that we've had called liberated payments. That might not be the final name of it, which is you, you just send a message to someone and they have all of the information needed to, um, to use that payment. And you can send that message over um sort of existing communication channels like uh, say signal or telegram or whatever.
0: So you sort of you just mentioned sort of the ZK roll-up model. And I and I could understand that there's like more of a kind con- architectural component that you're thinking of using, but like Zcash doesn't currently allow for smart contract writing. So it can't do like can it do kind of this off, off-chain and then like Batching, like, you know, bringing these sort of validity proofs on chain. Is that something that's actually possible with a Zcash UTXO model? Or is that like.
2: Uh, Yeah. So so Ethereum makes it easier to experiment with these things because you can write them in smart contracts. But um, if you have a specific design that you want to implement, then um, you don't need smart contracts. You can just bake it into the protocol.
0: I forget about that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> you, you you have control over the client. You could definitely like
2: decide. Yeah, huh. and and uh, supporting smart contracts makes everything a lot more complicated. Um, you you have to support scalability and privacy and smart contracts at the same time, and we only really know how to do two of those things.
0: So from the scaling sort of. Set up that we've just made, giving a little bit of background on why scaling is important, and like what ideas had already been floated through your work on this. I understand that like the, cons- the the sort of Halo proposal was born, and I'm really curious how those things link together. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about like the origin story of Halo, and yeah, a little bit about what it is.
3: Yeah. So uh, last year we were in the midst of this scalability design discussion, we were thinking about ways to achieve more efficient recursive snarks. So this is something that code is doing. Uh, you've had previous episodes talking about this, uh, the, the episode with Isaac and the episode with the authors of fractal. And at the time last year, there was only one, uh, known way or actually realized way of achieving recursive snarks. And this is actually a very significant component of our scalability plans. And so unfortunately uh, that way of doing recursive snarks is really inefficient. It required these cycles of pairing friendly elliptic curves and they were really gigantic curves that were not, not very efficient and used large fields, so it had this negative impact on the user experience uh, when you use the elliptic curve points is like keying material and things like that. So we wanted to find a more efficient way to do recursion. And so uh, I think at ZCon1, we were talking about these various ways to get more efficient uh, pairing-friendly cycles or to do these... Uh, new designs of arrangements of curves, but we didn't really get anywhere.
2: It's interesting to look at exactly why there's only one construction of pairing-friendly cycles. And that's because um, pairing-friendly curves are a very small subset of elliptic curves that could otherwise be used for cryptography. And you have to construct them with the the field size according to this um, polynomial. And then the the order of the elliptic curve is another polynomial. And you have to make those match up between the two um, curves in the cycle. Um, And that's the thing that is uh, difficult to do. And there's only one known construction that does that. Um, But if you remove the restriction that one or both of the curves are pairing friendly, then it becomes much easier.
3: So I think after Zcon, I thought, why not just use BN curve cycles? And there was this interesting insight where as long as one of the curves is pairing-friendly and you can build a succinct proving system on top of the pairing-friendly curve, it doesn't matter if the other curve's proving system uh, is succinct or not. And that gives us the flexibility to build uh, recursive SNARKs using a cycle like a BN curve cycle where one of the curves is pairing-friendly and the other isn't.
0: What's a BN curve? What What? What did you just say? Bn. Uh,
3: They're Beretta Nary curves. Heard. These are the curves that they deployed in Ethereum, uh, and they it was also the curve that we initially launched Zcash with. Okay. One one of these type one of these curves in this family of curves, and you can build different cycles depending on what exactly you're doing or what your requirements are. So I posted this idea on our GitHub. By the way, our GitHub is just like a treasure trove of ideas. Dara and I love to post. Uh, our ideas as soon as possible on there, cool. usually to preempt uh, patent trolls if they show up and, and claim <laughs> that they came up with an idea. But, so Dara's really good about taking her ideas and making sure they, they end up on GitHub eventually.
2: I, I usually tweet them as well. Yeah,
3: so uh, this this was an interesting starting point because I thought, okay, we, could, we can make recursion, but how efficient will it be? And I thought it, at first using this style of recursion it would be really slow, but I thought, okay, let's, let's implement it anyway uh, just for fun, just to say we did it. And in the process of doing that, so I teamed up with, uh, with Jack Grigg, Strat and uh, Dara, and we started working on an implementation and uh, of this style of recursion. And we realized that we could make it much more efficient as we were implementing it, as we were optimizing it, we were discovering like fundamental, Tricks that we could use to improve uh, the performance in practice. And one of those tricks was this thing that we refer to in the Halo paper as nested amortization. Might not be the best name for whatever it is, whatever this trick is doing, but essentially it's like a protocol between the proving system on one curve and the proving system on the other, Uh, which is really interesting because. Uh, it allows us to sidestep this requirement of doing these expensive operations to verify the proof that the, on the uh, proving system that isn't on the pairing-friendly curve. So it allows us to massively improve the performance of uh, recursion in that context, and then we can take it even further by not using any pairings and getting a, a, a fully rec- uh, recursive proof without using a trusted setup at all.
0: But, like, the Sonics paper was out. That was out at the beginning of 2019. And that also has this, you know, universal trusted setup. So that's where it's, like, allowing more people to join. But in this case, you, it sounds like you started in on a very different problem. And, like, did you take anything from Sonics? Like, I always thought of, like, Sonics as the first step towards no trusted setup. But this sounds like it's coming from a very different place.
3: Yeah, there's this... So the, Halo paper, so the Halo construction is built on top of this primitive uh, called the inner product argument, which is used, it's from a paper that precedes bulletproofs, but it's used in bulletproofs. And a lot of people call it, just refer to it as the bulletproofs scheme or whatever, but okay. that's, I don't think that's a fair description of it. But hey, um, so you can use this inner product argument to build a polynomial commitment scheme. And actually this is what was done in, uh, in Sonic, Sonic took this old polynomial commitment scheme uh, from 2010, this parian based one, and used it to build a universal SNARK. And so kind of from that starting point, it's like a simple way of getting, uh, starting to build a proving system. And it's a way that Planck and all these other recent uh, SNARKs uh, build on top of just this simple univariate polynomial commitment scheme. So... This inner product argument actually had this structure that we kind of accidentally s- discovered, where you could do this trick that we did in Sonic, where you could check a lot of proofs at, uh, at one at the cost of just checking one. And this was the one of the fundamental components of this nested amort- amortization strategy that we used to actually make oh, wow. uh, recursion possible.
2: Uh, In fact, um, so Bulletproof's uh, Sonic and Halo have another thing in common, which is that they use the same um, circuit arithmetization. Um, So you have multiplication constraints and linear constraints, which are uh, separate, unlike in R1CS systems. It actually gives you most of the advantages of R1CS because you can still do um, linear constraints um, very concisely.
3: Yeah, so actually, when we posted the Halo preprint publicly, this it was just a couple days, I think, or something like that, after the Planck paper was published, and so, uh, and this was before I think the Marlin paper was published. So there was, the, I mean, in September there was a lot of papers yeah. coming out. So <laughs> I remember. But but Halo isn't really like in, on the inside of Halo. It uses Sonics proving system. But it can be just swapped out for any of these newer things that are built on polynomial commitment schemes, like Marlin or Plonk or Splunk or whatever, whatever all these other new <laughs> structures
0: are called. Can you go back to the this nested amortization, amortization? How, like, what is the amortization part? Like, what does that, first of all, what does that word mean in this context?
3: Well, so... When you are usually checking a bunch of proofs, let's say you have 10 proofs and you want to check them. uh, You pay some fixed cost per proof. Okay. And something that we introduced in the sonic paper was this idea of uh, succinctness after amortization where you pay, you, you pay you. Okay. So you allow a third party helper, we called it, Oh, yeah. to create a, a proof that all of, the, all of the proofs are correct in some batch of proofs, in some fixed batch. And that proof itself uh, costs the same to check as all of the individual proofs. And so it allowed us to sort of cheat and say, okay, after amortization, we achieved something like succinctness. Uh, and then obviously in the sonic paper, we went on to uh, actually show that we could get full succinctness per proof. In a, in a really expensive way that was improved upon by Plonk and Marlin, but it turns out that this this strategy of uh, compressing the verification time using a third party helper to create the like a what we call an advice string, it turns out that this fundamental tool allows us to sidestep the, even the need for succinctness. Uh, so this nested amortization strategy uses this in in the following way. So Rather than checking a a proof completely, which is something that's expensive to do, and the the proving system can't do it because our inner product argument is very expensive. It's linear time to uh, to check. We allow the prover to build an advice string to convince the circuit that the proof is correct. And then we take bits of that advice string out as public inputs to the circuit. So that the verifier of that proof has to check that advice string. And then it happens again. We combine these two uh, advice strings together in the next uh, version of the cycle uh, using another one of these advice strings. And we just keep doing this as we recurse, as we bounce between the curves. And then eventually, on the outside of the circuit, you check the advice string to see if it's correct.
2: Um, something that that might not be quite obvious from the um, paper is that this doesn't have to be uh, a linear chain of proofs. It can be a tree of proofs.
0: So, is that is when you say a tree of proofs, are you talk like is this like a oracle tree style thing, or is this like are you talking about like a is this the recursion the recursiveness that is this tree?
2: Yeah, the the structure of the recursion can be a tree.
0: I see.
3: Yeah, this in practice, this is what you would do. This is what Coda does, for example. It's
2: the only thing that really makes sense. So you're proving everything at the leaves, um, but the leaves can be constructed by people who know different things, which is very useful.
0: I mean, I just remember doing a study club on Sonics, and like there was all these optimizations that you had kind of come up with. So what, what are the optimizations for Halo that you're working on?
2: Yeah, there are a lot of them, actually. So one of the the interesting ones is um, that we make use of a, an endomorphism on the um, the curves that we use. So um, it's actually similar to the secp two five six k one curve in Bitcoin. Um, they also use exactly the endomorphism and basically allows you to do multiplications on the curve more quickly. Uh, the, this has been known for a long time, and there's a there's a patented version of it, but the version we use. You don't take a, um, a random scalar and then decompose that into the operations that you want to use with the endomorphism. You do it the other way around. So you, you start with some random bits. So, say you need a challenge which is 128 bits. As long as you multiply by some scalar that has 128 bits of entropy, you're fine. And that's sufficient for the security of the scheme. So you just take the random bits and you plug this, plug them into this algorithm. That at each step, it either subtracts the base point or adds the base point, or it subtracts the base point with the endomorphism applied, or it adds the base point with the endomorphism applied. And that's four possibilities. So using what? two random bits at each step.
0: What is endomorphism?
2: <laughs> so it's a mapping, basically. Um,
0: Oh, oh! it's like a morphism. Like, what do you call it? Why is it endomorphism then?
2: Um, because it's mapping onto the same structure.
0: Oh, okay. Um, so
2: it's a mapping from a structure onto itself. Um, and it's a mapping that preserves the group operation. Uh, so this means that it's equivalent to a particular multiplication, so a multiplication by some scalar.
3: You had a fun episode uh, about isogenies recently where you went into exactly. morphisms and that was really <laughs> fun. Exactly.
0: I
1: tried to reference that episode uh, in our episode w- with uh, Vitalik and I completely lost all the terms and I ended up saying that you look for uh, uh, an elliptic curve of unknown order, which probably doesn't make sense actually, at all.
3: <laughs> <laughs> actually, that is a thing now.
1: <laughs> and what I actually wanted to say is unknown endomorphism ring.
0: <laughs> and, I, and I saw you were corrected on Twitter.
1: Yeah, which is great.
0: So what was that like? You just sort of said this. You you didn't you didn't necessarily start on this path with like a very clear goal. It was more like you started to explore something and you started to tease at it, and that's where you found out that there'd be this potential for for this uh, protocol. And I'm, I guess when, when I heard that, I was wondering if like the, is that how like Z, the ECC usually works? Is that it, do you have sort of the freedom to just like explore in certain directions, even though they might seem super inefficient? And like, how would you how would you make a choice to do that? Because you only have limited amount of time. I think this
3: is like a new thing for us. I think most of our previous advances and improvements, we've we've just thought of them, but in this case, it was unintended actually run into these discoveries and it's kind of made me think that it's a a good practice for other people to try. If you see something and someone tells you, oh, that's going to be too inefficient, try implementing it and then see what kind of clever ideas you can come up with. And the more experience I guess you have in engineering and design of protocols, the more likely you are to run into some uh, new improvements.
2: It was also really important there were three of us bouncing ideas off each other because I, I don't think we would have
0: um, found these things even if there were just two of us. And the three of you, you're all engineers.
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Most primarily. So you're not necessarily like you, would you, would you also fall in the research camp? I think so. I think
3: we all have contributed to like very novel ideas. I think that's, Partly just because we were the first people to actually deploy Snarks, so we managed to kind of run on this untrodden ground. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, we, we fall into the research camp, I think, uh, as well. equally as well as
0: engineering for sure. So you're sort of like the hybrid researcher engineers who have gotten together to try to like to look at problems that everybody told you were impossible to make more efficient. I think
2: you do have to have that engineering experience um, to know what direction to head in. Because um, you have a lot of protocols where the, it doesn't look as though the experience of what can be if it implemented efficiently has guided the design of the protocol. So that's very important.
3: Yeah, I think I think in two ways I've experienced this in the past. In one way, we're, uh, like years ago when... Um, I think it was Ian Myers was telling me, hey, why don't we use Peterson hashes inside of Sapling, which is a different kind of hash function for the Merkle tree. Because in our original launch of Zcash, we used SHA-256 for the Merkle tree and it was really slow. Uh, And he told me, oh, all you really need to use is uh, Peterson hashes. But won't those be really inefficient in the circuit? There's like a disconnect between what some researchers think is efficient and what is truly possible. And so I was able to immediately go, no, we could just make a curve and then uh, over this field, it would be super efficient. So just the fact that Ian didn't have that experience playing around with snarks meant that he thought something was impossible. On the flip side, from an engineering perspective, I've, for a long time, I've been looking at problems that I don't have an eng- or a research background in. I look at the problem and I say, why don't we do this? And actually, this is just a thing that happened for years at the UCC, where I'd say, why don't we just do it like this? And the researcher, probably Ariel or someone else would say, well, I don't know if I can prove that secure. And then they would go and prove it secure a few weeks later. But there's this tendency to like stay within the safe boundaries of research and only like peek out at, at certain little spots. But from the engineering perspective, you can kind of like totally flip the script. And, um, and I think this is just part of just being outside of core research and formalization, where you can just flip the script and uh, try something totally outlandish and definitely stress out the cryptographers and the people writing proofs, but uh, come up with something really, really more efficient or groundbreaking in the process. And that's happened many times as well at the ECC.
0: That's so interesting to hear it from that from that side, because I feel like on this podcast we've had so many conversations where it's a researcher will propose something and the engineers are like, "No way, it's going to be impossible to." <laughs> like, I feel like I've heard the other version of that, where the researchers have the big green field ideas and the impl- and the implementers are like, "Yo, this is going to be super complicated." We
2: we did that as well.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. As engineers, we're very desperate to get performance when when we've hit all of the possible. Uh, Things that we could think of to get performance out of something, so then we have to sort of uh, take the wheel a little bit on the research end and, and stretch things out and make people uncomfortable. But it's been worth it,
2: yeah. There, there are all of these um, new algebraic hashes which haven't really had enough cryptanalysis yet. Um, and that as engineers, we're really it, it would be great to have um, hashes that are really efficient in snark circuits. Um so these please, please more crypto analysis of those
1: I find that interesting in, in the zero knowledge proof space, combined with the blockchain space now how quick this cycle is from research to actually being in production somewhere. And it's slightly scary, as you say, like a lot of these concepts really don't have enough analysis. But there's still people out there super gung ho and just like, Oh, yeah, this proof was invented last week, let's, you know, put it into production somewhere.
2: Yeah, you, you can put it into production somewhere. You just can't necessarily put it in production with a um a currency that has a billion dollar market cap or whatever it is. That's actually what I
3: consider production. I I've, I've said this before. I think production really means that you're you're deciding to tell people, "Hey, I'm willing to risk my money on this. I'm really I think you should be willing to risk your money on this. I think that this yeah. works and you can use this in practice." That's what production is. A lot of stuff isn't in production just because it's on mainnet and Ethereum. It's in production because there's people, people's lives might depend on it. People's finances, people's privacy. So
1: pulling this discussion back a little bit to implementation and when you're actually like sitting down to write code. How do you go about implementing this? Because as you, like, we've weaved in and out of what this is and talking about how you arrive here trying to solve some other problem and then discovering things along the way, maybe we can take a step back up, reiterate what is Halo, and then dive into, like, what does an implementation that actually look like today?
3: So the idea behind Halo was to try to implement a really inefficient Uh, recursive snark using one of these BN curve cycles that we talked about. And we knew it was going to be inefficient and that we'd probably need like a cluster of computers in order to even create like a proof. We thought it'd be interesting and fun. So we went on to implement it. And then while we were trying to optimize one of the computations that we have to perform in inside of the construction, we were able to like realize that it had some structure, some really smooth structure to it. And tying this into these techniques that came out in the Sonic paper, we were able to cheat a little bit. It, we we it, it felt like a cheat at the time and almost didn't really even feel like it was something that would work. But it, it led to a theoretical improvement, a an asymptotic improvement in the construction, which is something you don't usually see when you're implementing pie-in-the-sky research stuff, usually you get little constant factor improvements in your code or you make multiplication faster for a field element or you whatever. You you make it a little bit faster, but we somehow, while implementing this, come up with a cheat that let us uh, massively speed up beyond what was, we believe, at the time, theoretically possible in that setting. And so that was really an exciting kind of turning point. Uh, And it led to us starting to explore, you know, how can we do this without these BN curve cycles? Can we avoid them entirely and just use normal curve cycles uh, and and not use any trusted setup? And that was really a huge thing for us because at ECC, we, we want to get rid of trusted setups. We've been working hard to make them more trustworthy with things like Sonic and so on, but getting rid of them is kind of ideal for us, or getting rid of the strong reliance on them?
2: At first, it wasn't quite obvious whether the, the curve cycles we were looking for were going to be common enough, because ideally you want a curves that uh, where the prime has a large um, two-odicity, so this is a way of making uh, fast Fourier transforms more efficient. So it wasn't obvious that we could construct pairs of curves forming a cycle where both of them have this high 2 it actually it turned out to be quite easy, and they're they're very common, and you just pick a random prime, and it almost just falls
0: out of that. I kind of want to define Halo in like some pretty like simple terms. So Halo is using recursive snarks. It is a trustless setup. It is like, and we've actually talked a little bit about how there's these two sides to this. Some of these constructions. So there's like the sides that Plonk and Marlin work on and then there's the sides that halo and supersonics work on and they can be used like supersonics could be used with marlin and halo could be used with plonk like you're kind of able to con- like lego block that I don't know if that's the right term but what else can we define halo in like maybe some other simple terms
3: So before before I do that I just want to point out how uh, this is kind of a fundamental problem with when we say oh, just use Plonk, or we just casually refer to these names. There's a lot more nuance to that. Because when I say Mm -hmm. Plonk, I could be talking about the the underlying construction inside of Plonk built over a particular polynomial commitment scheme. I could even be referring to a particular curve or something like that. Or I could be referring to a particular trusted setup that was used to instantiate Plonk. So I'd be talking about a lot of different things. And and Halo is the same way. Halo is a combination of at least like half a dozen different techniques, some more okay. important than others, that actually allows us to get to the recursion. So uh, the fundamental trick is this nested amortization strategy where you uh, continually compress the computation so that you don't actually have to uh, perform them in the circuit. You perform them outside the circuit, and that allows you to... Uh, allows the circuits to converge to a finite size and you get recursion. Then there's the fact that we're using a polynomial commitment scheme, a specific one that we have extracted out of the inner product argument and kind of modified a little bit uh, to instantiate something like Sonic or Planck or Marlin's fundamental primitive on top of that polynomial commitment scheme and then use it in, in this nested amortization strategy.
0: But that's where you could potentially replace them, right? That's right. where like the replacement could could live. Okay. Yeah, totally.
3: And uh, on top of that, the polynomial commitment scheme has this trick that we noticed where you could uh, actually do the amortization, so that this amortization argument we call it, where you kind of combine uh, these uh, th- 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 this advice string sort of thing. So the combination of those those ideas, the curve cycles the uh, use of this endomorphism trick to really speed things up and a bunch of other things are kind of just a combat, just all combined and mushed together and we call it halo that i i'm sure that adds to the confusion because the next iteration of this someone will say use halo oh but i don't want to use sonic i want to use plonk and that's just a confusing conversation that uh, there, there's a lot of confusion and nuance to, to the way that we describe these schemes.
0: This is actually really nice to hear that described because it's all like tools and tricks to get it into a state where recursion is better, where you can recurse easier, faster. What it, what does it do to the recursion? So
3: the fundamental challenge underlying recursion, like let's say that you took bullet proofs and you said, okay, I want to create a recursive proof using bulletproofs. Well, this means that you need to take the Bulletproof verifier and make a circuit out of it and put that circuit into your Bulletproof uh, proving system. But the circuit for checking the proof itself scales linearly or more in the size of the circuit that it's checking. And so as a result, it blows up uh, in size and you can't actually get recursion. It doesn't, or you don't get arbitrary depth recursion. out of this. So you need some way to not perform that linear time operation, and that's sort of what the nested amortization strategy is about. It's about cheating and not doing it, saying, okay, uh, there's two instances of me claiming I did it, I'm gonna have a proof that I did those two instances, and that proof uh, takes as much time to check as the original two, and then instead of doing this, I'll shuffle it up to the next layer and then keep doing that over and over.
0: And the trick is you never do the proving at the beginning? What is that?
3: Yeah, you never do, inside the circuit, you never do this operation that takes linear time. You always cheat and compress it probabilistically and then uh, bring it up to the next layer. And so this is what I mean by when I say that the nested amortization strategy allows us to achieve recursion. By achieve recursion, I mean it actually allows the, the circuit it, uh, is in this construction to actually converge to a finite size but because if it required this linear time operation, it could never converge to a finite size. It would blow up uh, as you continually nest. And that's why you can't build recursion with bulletproofs, but you can if you use this trick and use the polynomial commitment scheme and you build some sort of proving system on top of that.
2: To, so any proving system that you're trying to use this technique with has to be compatible with the technique. Um, oh, by the way, um, back when I was talking about the um and, and constructing pairs of curves with um, high 2 I said something that was slightly wrong. I said that you could use a, uh, just use a random prime. But actually, you have to um, use this thing called the complex multiplication equation. Uh, but if you look in the paper, it's explained. Actually, if you look in the GitHub repo where the code to generate the curves is, it's um dera slash tweedle that explains it.
0: Cool. I want to ask a question based on something that was mentioned very briefly at the very beginning, and that is like, what is a shark and how does that relate to Halo?
3: Yeah, so a shark is this sort of hybrid. Construction. I'm really excited about it. I like these. Uh, this is not our idea. It's um, an idea from Madars Verza and Iran And essentially, what it is is it's a snark where you can check it in two different ways. You can either check it in what's called a prudent manner, in which you pay a lot of time to verify the proof with respect to the circuit that it's checking un- underlying it. You can also check it in an optimistic way, in which it verifies very quickly. And the optimistic way depends on the trusted setup. But if the trusted setup is subverted, you can obviously cheat on the optimistic verification, but you can't cheat on the prudent verification. And this is a cool model because it means you get the fast speed when you care about latency, but you also get to detect when the trusted setup is compromised. So essentially it's, it's a superior version of uh, no trusted setup. And there's no, there's no real argument against it I can think of where the typical um, people who complain about trusted setups would have a problem with that, I think.
0: But what is that? How does it relate to Halo?
3: So I think that Halo has some future in this department. There's potential to have a really efficient verifier. I mean, Halo proofs themselves, I haven't really talked about the, the, their performance, but they're really small. They're the smallest recursive proofs. Uh, but they aren't super fast to verify, uh, at least alone in batches. They're pretty quick to verify, but alone they're not super fast to verify in the trusted in the no trusted setup mode. And so I think that adding kind of a hybrid model allows you to get the performance that uh, people want uh, out of recursive SNARKs. I think it performs well enough in practice that it can be used uh, just the way it is. But I think for people that really want good performance. Uh, this sort of this hybrid model is a good direction. And there's obviously this other direction where, and this is what CODA's doing, and we actually proposed this, this kind of originally how Halo came about, uh, which was using these BN curve cycles where on one side you have the trusted setup and on the other side you don't. And in this setting, you get, if you combine the techniques we use in Halo, you get some really good performance. And uh, that's, uh, that's why you heard uh, Isaac talking about this a lot in, in a previous episode. So so that that's an interesting direction for projects that don't mind trusted setups like Coda.
2: Uh, it, it might actually be worth talking about the concrete performance of Halo. Uh, I mean, you can see this in the paper, but when we talk about small proofs, the proof size that you need for recursion is about 3.5 kilobytes. And it's that's strictly ro- logarithmic. So if you wanted a larger circuit, it's it's logarithmic in the circuit size. And then the verifier time. So for a two to the 17 circuit, it's about one second on a machine using 16 threads. Um, so it, it's quite practical, at least for some applications. Immediately, it, it's not as though the linear time means that it's impractical, because. You only need to verify one thing. It's, it's not as though you would have to pay one second per transaction. You're paying one second to verify a whole tree of transactions.
0: Well, I want to understand a little bit, why are we seeing this explosion of new protocols and like, how do polynomial commitments have anything to do with this?
2: So what this idea of splitting a SNARK scheme into a polynomial commitment part and a, a arithmetization part and um, a kind of information theoretically secure protocol does. It allows you to iterate on those independently. That is why we're seeing um, so much progress recently. We we can have different sets of researchers uh, working on those two parts independently. You can mix and match oh, wow. between the two.
3: I think that's a that's a good answer for like the practical side of why we're seeing an explosion. I think that there's also some some other factors that go into it, which is just the, the, fundamental, the fundamental nature of polynomials at their core are like this um, algebraic object that lets us manipulate a lot of different things at the same time. And anytime you have something like that, for example, a Peterson commitment or uh, whatever, it's a very useful tool in cryptography. So polynomial commitments are like a fundamental tool that allows us to operate on a lot of information at the same time, which is why you see it used in things like an accumulator, like this new, new construction that Vitalik was talking about uh, because you can operate over all the information and demonstrate consistency and correctness internally. Polynomials also have structure that you can manipulate uh, in individual pieces. And that's uh, kind of combining those two really gives you the flexibility to build all sorts of things like snarks and, anything
2: else. And it's it's also what allows you to have succinctness. There's um, this property called the uh, Schwarz-Ziffel lemma, which basically allows you to prove that when two polynomials are equal, just by making a small number of checks. So um, all snarks are based on
0: that. I like that idea that you just presented, though, where by kind of looking closer at this polynomial commitment idea, or you were able to actually break apart the snark into these different places that you could start optimizing on and then you could have these dedicated researchers focused on that and that's maybe why what we're seeing like we've had interviews with a lot of different protocol developers on their protocol and you see a lot of a lot of parts are very similar and then like maybe one part will be you know that will be where the optimization that's the the part of the entire p- protocol that they've decided to like focus in on in the case of halo how to polynomial like where are the polynomial commitments? What are they doing?
3: They're, they're acting the same way as they do in any other of, of the recent SNARKs. So they're just a, a method for us to uh, build a SNARK. And the current theoretical uh, direction that SNARKs are taking is to have polynomial commitments at the core because they're a really simple um, algebraic structure that describes exactly what's going on in, in, a, in a SNARK. Um, in in these like interactive oracle proofs and so on.
2: But by the way, who should we attribute the this idea of splitting snark into these two pieces to? Because I, I know it's implicit in a lot of earlier papers, but it, it really became clear with um, Sonic. I think was that Mary Mala.
3: Yeah, Sonic. I think Sonic was the first scheme to actually break up like this the protocol. Uh, from the polynomial commitment scheme, and then it was formalized later on in different ways by Marlin and or Marlin and um, Supersonic and so on. Uh, so yeah, it was it was introduced by by the Sonic paper, I think. But yeah, like you said, it was implicit in previous constructions.
0: Given all of these protocols that have come out, what would you say is actually a comparable protocol to Halo? So
3: Halo is more than just a proving system like Planck and Marlin. It's also a just a, an, 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 a, a recursive proving system. So it supports recursion, and it's kind of inherent in its design. We, I mean, we can extract out the proving system underlying Halo into its own thing, but the recursion is a little bit more than that. So the only thing that's really comparable to it currently is uh, something like Fractal. And Fractal uh, obviously has this, uh, it, it's uh, post-quantum secure. And it's also it also has this property of succinctness where the, the verifier actually takes uh, polylogarithmic time to execute depending on the underlying circuit that it's checking. In Halo, we don't have that strictly speaking. Um, the actual cost of checking the Halo, the fully recursive proof, although it doesn't depend on the depth of the recursion, it does depend on the size of the circuit. And uh, although you can sort of bootstrap this into creating a snark, and that's where you get it, the comparison between that and supersonic, which would allow Halo to be a more efficient version of, or uh, at least smaller proof sizes uh, compared to supersonic. And, um, but Halo's proof sizes are the, the fully recursive proofs and, and just in the recursive setting are much smaller than fractals. So that's, that's kind of the overall comparison. And I guess it's more useful to kind of talk about directions. So how much further can we stretch the Halo approach to improve things versus how much further we can stretch the fractal approach. And I think they both have about the same, as, uh, same amount of wiggle room that I can tell in just guessing. So I'm not really sure which approach is gonna end up being the best in the long run. Um, so it's going to be interesting next couple of years, I guess.
2: The other um, axis you can compare systems along is the, the cryptographic assumptions that they depend on. So Halo depends only on discrete log-like assumptions. Um, it's proven secure in the algebraic group model, but something like supersonic, for example, requires um, groups of unknown order, which is uh, sort of another level of complexity in cryptography that Got needs it. analysis. And then you, have all of the, then you have all of the pairing-based protocols. Halo
3: definitely isn't proven secure in the algebraic group model, though I'm sure it is, but yeah.
0: What's in store for Halo? We kind of we started talking a little bit about like where ECC is at and like this focus on scaling Halo has now been at least it, like has it been implemented? It's been described. W- where are you at with it?
3: Yeah, we've definitely we've implemented Halo and a very efficient version of Halo. We want to get that out publicly as soon as we can, but also just getting a really robust implementation uh, that that could actually be used in a in a product uh, seems like an interesting direction to. Uh, to go. And also there's uh, just stripping out the internal piece of Halo where it uses Sonic and replacing it with something like Plonk or Turbo Plonk or all these other new, really efficient proving systems that are built on polynomial commitments. Doing that in combination with more clever optimization work that I'm sure there's plenty more to, to go. I think that uh Massive improvements to performance can go from there, just on the implementation side alone, and then on the research side, of course, trying to figure out how to make it more efficient uh, theoretically using new tricks.
0: And- but where where would it live? Like, so you impl- say, you release it. Does it just live as a library, or are you going to implement it into something? And would it be like in the next upgrade, or would this require like doing one of these like ETH two new new setups and migrations?
2: So the, the scaling proposal that I described at um, ZCOM 1, and the, there's a video of, of the Amsterdam um, ZK proof event, that can directly use Halo. Um, the, I don't think there's any other sort of theoretical research needed to make that proposal work. Uh, it's just design and engineering.
0: But is that being brought into the next upgrade or is that it existing as a standalone project that would need migration towards?
3: We don't have any concrete plans currently. I'd say that it would likely look like a prototype before it would end up being deployed. Yeah, it would definitely be
2: deployed on a testnet first. Um, Yeah. Uh,
3: Whether or not we would use like a... Giant migration approach like Ethereum. That's how I would intuitively prefer to do it, but uh, I I don't think we've made a decision on that kind of.
0: But you would need that. That's actually the question I have here. Is like you can't use Halo in an upgrade. You'd have to create. You'd have to deploy uh, it as a genesis as a new. So anyway. not
3: necessarily, but we oh. couldn't use our existing protocol as is. Like the the payment addresses that people use today would not be the same as that. When uh, yeah, yeah yeah future with halo at least as far as we understand but this all depends on if we use halo Uh, like for example if fractal got to be so efficient that it didn't uh just in terms of proof size we might not use halo and we might use fractal instead or something like that in which case we could probably come up with a way to avoid having to do um a a change in addresses and there's also other political discussions and there's a lot up in the air we have no idea
2: so so yeah Remember that we have done an upgrade of all of the cryptography or most of the cryptography in Zcash once before we've done sapling. And that was pretty successful. So I d- don't underestimate our in- ingenuity in figuring out how to make this work. we'll make it work somehow.
0: So I want to say thank you both for being here and for kind of going on this journey with us through Halo, through like kind of where it comes from and a little bit about where it's going. I it does sound like given that, you know, given that this is pretty new research, I guess there's going to be a lot of discussion and debate and kind of I don't know, more research in in the meantime.
2: Yeah, we, we have two upgrades in the pipeline. Um, uh, one to, um, to 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 let more things be done in a shielded way. Um and uh, to support this um, thing called um, Fly Client and Merkle Mountain Ranges, um, I won't go into detail about that. And then there's another upgrade which uh, will be adding the um, the new Zcash Development Fund uh, and maybe some other minor um, things at the same time. Um, but no, uh, any ch- major change in the cryptography would be at, at least a year later than that. So we're talking okay. about um, 2021.
1: All right, it's been a great conversation and so much to dig into. And I hope to have both of you back sometime. Uh, Thank you very much for joining. We'd like that.
3: Thanks for having us.
1: And to our listeners, thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening.